On the Soul and the Resurrection by St. Gregory of Nyssa Part 11 Then are you not aware, I insisted, of all the objections, a very swarm of them, which our antagonists bring against us in connection with that hope of yours? And I at once tried to repeat all the devices hit upon by their captious champions to upset the doctrine of the resurrection. She, however, replied, First, I think, we must briefly run over the scattered proclamations of this doctrine in Holy Scripture. They shall give the finishing touch to our discourse. Observe, then, that I can hear David in the midst of his praises in the divine songs, saying at the end of the hymnody of the hundred and third psalm, where he has taken for his theme God's administration of the world, You shall take away their breath, and they shall die, and return to their dust. You shall send forth your spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. He says that a power of the spirit which works in all vivifies the beings into whom it enters and deprives those whom he abandons of their life. Seeing then that the dying is declared to occur at the spirit's departure and the renewal of these dead ones at his appearance, and seeing moreover that in the order of the statement the death of those who are to be thus renewed comes first, we hold that in these words that mystery of the resurrection is proclaimed to the church, and that David, in the spirit of prophecy, expressed this very gift which you are asking about. You will find this same prophet in another place, also saying that the God of the world the Lord of everything that is, hath showed himself to us that we may keep the feast amongst the decorations. By that mention of decoration with boughs, he means the feast of tabernacle fixing, which, in accordance with Moses' injunction, has been observed from of old. That lawgiver, I take it, adopting a prophet's spirit, predicted therein things still to come, for though the decoration was always going on, it was never finished. The truth, indeed, was foreshadowed under the type and riddle of those feasts that were always occurring. But the true tabernacle fixing was not yet come. And on this account, the God and Lord of the whole world, according to the prophet's declaration, hath showed himself to us that the tabernacle fixing of this our tenement that has been dissolved may be kept for humankind. A material decoration, that is, may be begun again by means of the concourse of our scattered atoms. For that word, pukasmos, in its peculiar meaning, signifies the temple circuit and the decoration which completes it. Now this passage from the Psalms runs as follows. God and Lord hath showed himself to us. Keep the feast amongst the decorators, even unto the horns of the altar. 
and this seems to me to proclaim in metaphors the fact that one single feast is to be kept by the whole rational creation, and that in that assembly of the saints the inferiors are to join the dance with their superiors. For in the case of the fabric of that temple which was the type, it was not allowed to all who were on the outside of its circuit to come within. But everything that was Gentile and alien was prohibited from entering. And of those further who had entered, all were not equally privileged to advance toward the center, but only those who had consecrated themselves by a holy manner of life and by certain sprinklings. And again, not everyone amongst these might set foot within the interior of the temple. The priests alone had the right of entering within the curtain, and that only for the service of the sanctuary, while even to the priests the darkened shrine of the temple where stood the beautiful altar with its jutting horns was forbidden, except to one of them who held the highest office of the priesthood and who once a year on a stated day and unattended passed within it carrying an offering more than usually sacred and mystical. Such being the differences in connection with this temple which you know of, it was clearly a representation and an imitation of the condition of the spirit world, the lesson taught by these material observances being this, that it is not the whole of the rational creation that can approach the temple of God, or, in other words, the adoration of the Almighty, but that those who are led astray by false persuasions are outside the precinct of the deity, and that from the number of those who by virtue of this adoration have been preferred to the rest and admitted within it, some, by reason of sprinklings and purifications, have still further privileges. And again, amongst these last, those who have been consecrated priests have privileges further still, even to being admitted to the mysteries of the interior. And that one may bring into still clearer light the meaning of the allegory, we may understand the word here as teaching this, that amongst all the powers endued with reason, some have been fixed like a holy altar in the inmost shrine of the deity, and that again of these last, some jut forward like horns for their eminence, and that around them others are arranged first or second, according to a prescribed sequence of rank, that the race of man, on the contrary, on account of indwelling evil, was excluded from the divine precinct. But that purified with lustral water, it re-enters it. And since all the further barriers by which our sin has fenced us off from the things within the veil are, in the end, to be taken down, whenever the time comes that the tabernacle of our nature is, as it were, to be fixed up again, in the resurrection, and all the inveterate corruption of sin has vanished from the world, then 
a universal feast will be kept around the deity by those who have decorated themselves in the resurrection. And one and the same banquet will be spread for all, with no differences cutting off any rational creature from an equal participation in it. For those who are now excluded by reason of their sin will at last be admitted within the holiest places of God's blessedness and will bind themselves to the horns of the altar there, that is, to the most excellent of the transcendental powers. The Apostle says the same thing more plainly when he indicates the final accord of the whole universe with the good, that to him every knee shall bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Instead of the horns, speaking of that which is angelic and in heaven, and by the other terms signifying ourselves, the creatures whom we think of next to that. One festival of united voices shall occupy us all. That festival shall be the confession and the recognition of the being who truly is. One might, she proceeded, select many other passages of Holy Scripture to establish the doctrine of the resurrection. For instance, Ezekiel leaps in the spirit of prophecy over all the intervening time with its vast duration. He stands by his powers of foresight in the actual moment of the resurrection, and as if he had really gazed on what is still to come, brings it in his description before our eyes. He saw a mighty plain unfolded to an endless distance before him, and vast heaps of bones upon it, flung at random, some this way, some that. And then, upon their impulse from God, these bones began to move and group themselves with their fellows that they once owned, and adhere to the familiar sockets, and then clothed themselves with muscle, flesh, and skin, which was the process called decorating in the poetry of the Psalms. A spirit, in fact, was giving life and movement to everything that lay there. But as regards our apostles' description of the wonders of the resurrection, why should one repeat it, seeing that it can be easily found and read? How, for instance, with a shout and the sound of trumpets in the language of the word, all dead and prostrate things shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye into immortal beings. The expressions in the gospel also I will pass over, for their meaning is quite clear to everyone. And our Lord does not declare in word alone that the bodies of the dead shall be raised up again, but he shows in action the resurrection itself, making a beginning of this work of wonder from things more within our reach and less capable of being doubted. First, that is, he displays his life-giving power in the case of the deadly forms of disease, and chases those maladies by one word of command. 
raises a little girl just dead. Then he makes a young man who is already being carried out sit up on his bier and delivers him to his mother. After that, he calls forth from his tomb the four days dead and already decomposed Lazarus, vivifying the prostrate body with his commanding voice. Then, after three days, he raises from the dead his own human body, pierced though it was with the nails and the spear, and brings the print of those nails and the spear wound to witness to the resurrection. But I think that a detailed mention of these things is not necessary, for no doubt about them lingers in the minds of those who have accepted the written accounts of them. But that, said I, was not the point in question. Most of your hearers will assent to the fact that there will some day be a resurrection, and that man will be brought before the incorruptible tribunal, on account both of the scripture proofs and also of our previous examination of the question. But still, the question remains, is the state which we are to expect to be like the present state of the body? Because if so, then, as I was saying, men had better avoid hoping for any resurrection at all. For if our bodies are to be restored to life again in the same sort of condition as they are in when they cease to breathe, then all that man can look forward to in the resurrection is an unending calamity. For what spectacle is more piteous than when in extreme old age our bodies shrivel up and change into something repulsive and hideous, with the flesh all wasted in the length of years, the skin dried up about the bones until it is all in wrinkles, the muscles in a spasmodic state from being no longer enriched with their natural moisture, and the whole body consequently shrunk, the hands on either side powerless to perform their natural work, shaken with an involuntary trembling. What a sight, again, are the bodies of persons in a long consumption. They differ from bare bones only in giving the appearance of being covered with a worn-out veil of skin. What a sight, too, are those of persons swollen with the disease of dropsy, what words could describe the unsightly disfigurement of sufferers from leprosy? Gradually, over all their limbs and organs of sensation, rottenness spreads and devours them. What words could describe that of persons who have been mutilated in earthquake, battle, or any other visitation, and live on in such a plight for a long time before their natural deaths, or of those who from an injury have grown up from infancy with their limbs awry. What can one say of them? What is one to think about the bodies of newborn infants who have been either exposed or strangled or died a natural death, if they are to be brought to life again just as they were? Are they to continue in that infantile state? What condition could be more miserable than that? Or are they to come to the flower of their age? Well, but what sort of milk has nature got to suckle them with? It comes then to this, that if our bodies are to live again in every respect the same as before, 
this thing that we are expecting is simply a calamity. Whereas, if they are not the same, the person raised up will be another than he who died. If, for instance, a little boy was buried, but a grown man rises again, or, reversely, how can we say that the dead in his very self is raised up, when he has had someone substituted for him by virtue of this difference in age? Instead of the child, one sees a grown-up man. Instead of the old man, one sees a person in his prime. In fact, instead of the one person, another entirely. The cripple is changed into the able-bodied man, the consumptive sufferer into a man whose flesh is firm, and so on, of all possible cases, not to enumerate them for fear of being prolix. If then the body will not come to life again, just such in its attributes as it was when it mingled with the earth, that dead body will not rise again. But on the contrary, the earth will be formed into another man. How, then, will the resurrection affect myself when instead of me someone else will come to life? Someone else, I say. For how could I recognize myself when, instead of what was once myself, I see someone not myself. It cannot really be I, unless it is in every respect the same as myself. Suppose, for instance, in this life I had in my memory the traits of someone. Say he was bald, had prominent lips, a somewhat flat nose, a fair complexion, gray eyes, white hair, wrinkled skin. And then went to look for such a one, and met a young man with a fine head of hair, an aquiline nose, a dark complexion, and in all other respects quite different in his type of countenance. Am I likely in seeing the latter to think of the former? But why dwell longer on these, the less forcible objections to the resurrection, and neglect the strongest one of all? For who has not heard that human life is like a stream, moving from birth to death at a certain rate of progress, and only ceasing from that progressive movement when it ceases also to exist? This movement, indeed, is not one of spatial change. Our bulk never exceeds itself. But it makes this advance by means of internal alteration. And as long as this alteration is that which its name implies, it never remains at the same stage from moment to moment. For how can that which is being altered be kept in any sameness? The fire on the candle wick, as far as appearance goes, certainly seems always the same, the continuity of its movement giving it the look of being an uninterrupted and self-centered whole. But, in reality, it is always passing itself along and never remains the same. The moisture which is extracted by the heat is burnt up and changed into smoke the moment it is burst into flame. And this alterative force affects the movement of the flame, working by itself the change of the subject matter into smoke. Just then, as it is impossible for one who has touched that flame twice on the same place, to touch twice 
the very same flame. For the speed of the alteration is too quick. It does not wait for that second touch, however rapidly it may be affected. The flame is always fresh and new. It is always being produced, always transmitting itself, never remaining at one and the same place. A thing of the same kind is found to be the case with the constitution of our body. There is influx and afflux going on in it, in an alterative progress, until the moment that it ceases to live. As long as it is living, it has no stay, for it is either being replenished, or it is discharging in vapor, or it is being kept in motion by both of these processes combined. If, then, a particular man is not even the same as he was yesterday, but is made different by this transmutation, when so be that the resurrection shall restore our body to life again, that single man will become a crowd of human beings, so that with his rising again there will be found the babe, the child, the boy, the youth, the man, the father, the old man, and all the intermediate persons that he once was. But further, chastity and profligacy are both carried on in the flesh. Those also who endure the most painful tortures for their religion, and those, on the other hand, who shrink from such, both one class and the other, reveal their character in relation to fleshly sensations. How, then, can justice be done at the judgment? Or take the case of one and the same man first sinning, and then cleansing himself by repentance, and then it might so happen, relapsing into his sin. In such a case, both the defiled and undefiled body alike undergoes a change as his nature changes, and neither of them continue to the end the same. Which body, then, is the profligate to be tortured in? In that which is stiffened with old age and near to death? This is not the same as that which did the sin. In that, then, which defiled itself by giving way to passion? But where is the old man in that case? The last, in fact, will not rise again, and the resurrection will not do a complete work, or else he will rise while the criminal will escape. Let me say something else also from amongst the objections made by unbelievers to this doctrine. No part, they urge, of the body is made by nature without a function. Some parts, for instance, are the efficient causes within us of our being alive. Without them, our life in the flesh could not possibly be carried on. Such are the heart, liver, brain, lungs, stomach, and the other vitals. Others are assigned to the activities of sensation, others to those of handling and walking. Others are adapted for the transmission of a posterity. Now, if the life to come is to be in exactly the same circumstances as this, the supposed change in us is reduced to nothing. But if the report is true, as indeed it is, which represents marriage as forming no part of the 
economy of that afterlife, and eating and drinking as not then preserving its continuance, what use will there be for the members of the body, when we are no longer to expect in that existence any of the activities for which our members now exist? If for the sake of marriage there are now certain organs adapted for marriage, then whenever the latter ceases to be, we shall not need those organs. The same may be said of the hands for working with, the feet for running with, the mouth for taking food with, the teeth for grinding it with, the organs of the stomach for digesting, the evacuating ducts for getting rid of that which has become superfluous. When, therefore, all those operations will be no more, how and wherefore will their instruments exist? So that necessarily, if the things that are not going to contribute in any way to that other life are not to surround the body, none of the parts which at present constitute the body would exist either. That life, then, will be carried on by other instruments, and no one could call such a state of things a resurrection. Where the particular members are no longer present in the body, owing to their being useless to that life. But if, on the other hand, our resurrection will be represented in every one of these, then the author of the resurrection will fashion things in us of no use and advantage to that life. And yet we must believe not only that there is a resurrection, but also that it will not be an absurdity. We must, therefore, listen attentively to the explanation of this, so that for every part of the truth we may have its probability saved to the last. When I had finished, the teacher thus replied, You have attacked the doctrines connected with the resurrection with some spirit, in the way of rhetoric, as it is called. You have coursed round and round the truth with plausibly subversive arguments, so much so that those who have not very carefully considered this mysterious truth might possibly be affected in their view of it by the likelihood of those arguments, and might think that the difficulty started against what has been advanced was not altogether beside the point. But, she proceeded, the truth does not lie in these arguments even though we may find it impossible to give a rhetorical answer to them, couched in equally strong language. The true explanation of all these questions is still stored up in the hidden treasure rooms of wisdom, and will not come to the light until that moment when we shall be taught the mystery of the resurrection by the reality of it. And then there will be no more need of phrases, to explain the things which we now hope for. Just as many questions might be started for debate amongst people sitting up at night as to the thing that sunshine is, and then the simple appearing of it in all its beauty would render any verbal description superfluous. So every calculation that tries to arrive conjecturally at the future state will be reduced to nothingness by the object of our hopes when it comes upon us.
since it is our duty not to leave the arguments brought against us in any way unexamined, we will expound the truth as to these points as follows. First, let us get a clear notion as to the scope of this doctrine. In other words, what is the end that Holy Scripture has in view in promulgating it and creating the belief in it? Well, to sketch the outline of so vast a truth and to embrace it in a definition, we will say that the resurrection is the reconstitution of our nature in its original form. In that form of life of which God himself was the creator, it is reasonable to believe that there was neither age nor infancy nor any of the sufferings arising from our present various infirmities, nor any kind of bodily affliction whatever. It is reasonable, I say, to believe that God was the creator of none of these things, but that man was a thing divine before his humanity got within reach of the assault of evil. That then, however, with the inroad of evil, all these afflictions also broke in upon him. Accordingly, a life that is free from evil is under no necessity whatever of being passed amidst the things which result from evil. It follows that when a man travels through ice, he must get his body chilled, or when he walks in a very hot sun, that he must get his skin darkened. But if he has kept clear of the one or the other, he escapes these results entirely, both the darkening and the chilling. No one, in fact, when a particular cause was removed, would be justified in looking for the effect of that particular cause. Just so, our nature, becoming passional, had to encounter all the necessary results of a life of passion. But when it shall have started back to that state of passionless blessedness, it will no longer encounter the inevitable results of evil tendencies. Seeing, then, that all the infusions of the life of the brute into our nature were not in us before our humanity descended, through the touch of evil, into passions. Most certainly, when we abandon those passions, we shall abandon all their visible results. No one, therefore, will be justified in seeking in that other life for the consequences in us of any passion. Just as if a man clad in a ragged tunic, who has divested himself of the garb, feels no more its disgrace upon him. So we too, when we have cast off that dead, unsightly tunic made from the skins of brutes and put upon us, for I take the coat of skins of animals, to mean that confirmation belonging to a brute nature with which we were clothed when we became familiar with passionate indulgence, shall, along with the casting off of that tunic, fling from us all the belongings that were round us of that skin of a brute. And such accretions as sexual intercourse, conception, parturition, 
impurities, suckling, feeding, evacuation, gradual growth to full size, prime of life, old age, disease, and death. If that skin is no longer around us, how can its resulting consequences be left behind within us? It is folly, then, when we are to expect a different state of things in the life to come, to object to the doctrine of the resurrection on the ground of something that has nothing to do with it. I mean, what has thinness or corpulence, a state of consumption or a plethora, or any other condition supervening in a nature that is ever in a flux, to do with the other life, stranger as it is to any fleeting and transitory passing such as that. One thing and one thing only is required for the operation of the resurrection, viz. that a man should have lived by being born, or to use rather the gospel words, that a man should be born into the world. The length or briefness of the life, the manner this or that of the death, is an irrelevant subject of inquiry in connection with that operation. Whatever instance we take, howsoever we suppose this to have been, it is all the same. From these differences in life there arises no difficulty any more than any facility with regard to the resurrection. He who has once begun to live must necessarily go on having once lived after his intervening dissolution in death has been repaired in the resurrection. As to the how and when of his dissolution, what do they matter to the resurrection? Consideration of such points belongs to another line of inquiry altogether. For instance, a man may have lived in bodily comfort or in affliction, virtuously or viciously, renowned or disgraced. He may have passed his days miserably or happily. These and such like results must be obtained from the length of his life and the manner of his living. And to be able to pass a judgment on the things done in his life it will be necessary for the judge to scrutinize his indulgences, as the case may be, or his losses, or his disease, or his old age, or his prime, or his youth, or his wealth, or his poverty. How well or ill a man, placed in either of these, concluded his destined career. Whether he was the recipient of many blessings or of many ills in the length of life, or tasted neither of them at all, but ceased to live before his mental powers were formed. But whenever the time come that God shall have brought our nature back to the primal state of man, it will be useless to talk of such things then, and to imagine that objections based upon such things can prove God's power to be impeded in arriving at his end. His end is one and one only. It is this. When the complete whole of our race shall have been perfected from the first man to the last, some having at once in this life being cleansed from evil, others having afterward in the necessary periods 
been healed by the fire, others having in their life here been unconscious equally of good and of evil. To offer to every one of us participation in the blessings which are in him, which, the scripture tells us, eye has not seen nor ear heard, nor thought ever reached. But this is nothing else, as I at least understand it, but to be in God himself. For the good which is above hearing and eye and heart must be that good which transcends the universe. End of Part 11 of On the Soul and the Resurrection